Here we go. Let's talk about it. Hey, by the way, I knew this was going to happen and I wasn't pre... I, I knew it, but I didn't think about it. If we are going to talk about the enemy and try to expose him, what's he going to do? He's going to attack. Wow. The last couple of weeks, just keep in prayer. Uh, different folk in church. This has been just... Uh, uh, it feels like we're in the firing line in the last two, three weeks in an unbelievable fashion with homes being attacked and different difficulties. And so um, maybe the moral of the story is don't ever talk about Satan. But that would be wrong. That's like saying I want to grow but I don't want trials. It doesn't work that way. And so as we are exposing what Satan does and what he does and how he works, uh, we can expect that he's going to try to distract, discourage. And so he's on the move right now in, in our midst. Are angels and demons real? Here's where we were. If you're visiting with us or haven't been in this class to this point, we talked about all these things. Yes, they're real. There's a lot of references in Scripture about demons. Jesus talked to them, talked about them, and we know he's no lunatic. Therefore, they're absolutely real. They are spirit beings is the other thing that we were pointing out with the demons is that they're invisible most of the time but they can appear to people and when they do they look different than us for the most part. Sometimes they look similar and they're mistaken but the most uh, time they are just really phenomenal looking creatures. They're not limited by space. We talked about how they can a legion can be in a small body. They are far more superior than us in strength and in other areas. We talked about how they're not subject to death. It says in Luke that they do not die and uh, they portray unique characteristics like mankind, man's in the image of God. So we have intellect, emotion, will, self-awareness, eternal uh, uh, spirits. And so that makes us distinct in many ways from the animal kingdom. And so our comment was this, is that though angels are phenomenal creatures, they're not to be worshipped. They are below God. They are not omniscient. They are not omnipotent. And yet they are part of God's creation work and they do a work towards us, which we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. Okay, where did they come from? We made these comments that they were created sometime during creation week. When they were created during creation week, they, it says on the seventh day God looked at all he, he created and he saw that it was good. So they did not fall until sometime after creation week, but they fell sometime after the seventh day and before Satan starts the temptation in chapter 3 of Genesis. And so we know that originally they're all in heaven. Okay, we know the, the passage in, in, Gen, in Genesis 28, that's the passage where Jacob sees, remember the, the, he sees heaven in the sense, what is he seeing going up and down? The angel's going up and down a stairway or a ladder. It's called Jacob's Ladder. After the fall, Satan still does have access. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes. Okay, some are already chained in hell. Okay, we pointed out that yeah, there's scriptures that talks about God has already changed some of the demons in hell. They're already confined. Why some and why not the others? There's postulations and, and ideas given. I'm not sure uh, I fully understand why it is that some are there and some aren't. But the fact is, some are already bound. And yet at the same time, we know they're not all bound because Ephesians chapter 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and talks about the darkness. So they're still around, many of them, and so we have this conflict going on that they are still on the attack. There's some that are still free roaming. That We're talking about the demons now. We know that the good angels, they are free roaming, and our comment here for uh, what we want to do before we get into the Satan and demons is what do the good angels do? 
what are they involved in? Since they're free roaming and uh, they're active, do they interact with us? How do they interact with us? So we're talking about how they would serve the Lord. Um, from, from without looking at multiple texts, what do you know already? How did the angels serve the Lord? They serve God Almighty. What did they do? Do you remember in Isaiah that talks about in Isaiah 6 that they are, that he sees God high and holy lifted up and there's the seraphim that he sees with the six wings and the seraphim are calling out, singing out loud a song that we sing. Right. Okay, so what does that tell you angels do? One of, the, one of, one of their jobs. Okay, they're involved with praising the Lord. They are called his ministers uh, multiple times in Scripture. And so as ministers, they're doing whatever his bidding is. What, what does God do, use angels to do? Uh, he, they're worshiping him. Do you, can you think of any Bible illustration, Bible passage that talks about what God has angels do, good angels do? What's that? They, he has them deliver messages. We're going to see how, and in fact, we're going to mention a couple of those passages where they are delivering messages to people. Okay? Anything else that you, can, that you remember? In the book of Revelation, what does he have some of the good angels do? Okay, against... Okay, against the evil angels. Somebody over here? Okay. There are, uh, the other facts, are they're involved in worship. Um, they do carry out as judgments. In the book of Revelation, remember the six bowls or seven vials, seven bowls? The angels are carrying them. And the angels pour them out upon the earth. And so the angels are involved in a lot of different activities. Um, in fact, there's times where they do, they do battle in evil, when you say that in the Old Testament, they do battle against human armies at times. That uh, they would not only resist the spiritual enemies, but also the physical enemies of Israel. And so we know that they're serving God. This is good angels. These are who have not resisted. In the, in the life of Jesus Christ, they were very active. At his birth, what did angels do? In, in, some, in relationship to his birth. Okay, what did you say? They appear to the shepherds, making the announcement. They appear to Mary, giving Mary the information. Okay. Um, anything else they can think of? Okay. Uh, Joseph the angel appeared in a dream. You're right. Okay. Okay, the shepherds was mentioned. Mary and Joseph, there was all, they were also warned by an angel if you remember, to get out of the area and go to Egypt. It was an angel that spoke to them. It doesn't tell us how the wise men found out, but it says, just as the wise men were warned, it says in that Matthew 2 passage that an angel warned Mary and Joseph. And so they were, they were actively involved in the announcement to Mary and Joseph. And they were warning Jesus' family. So they're very involved in Jesus' birth story. Okay. We also know that they were involved in his lifetime during his ministry years. Can you think of when angels helped Jesus? Okay, at the temptation. At the temptation, they came and they, ref they were used of God to help him physically be refreshed. Do you remember another time that they did that? There was another occasion that it says that Jesus was extremely distraught and an angel came and assisted him. The Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's Luke is the only one that mentions it. But, it. but Luke is the only one that mentions he also sweated the drops of blood. Okay, Dr. Luke was giving that information. Uh, any other things that the angels did during his lifetime? 
We don't see him wholly active. We see more of the demons interacting with Jesus. But um, Jesus did make the comment that when he's talking about that idea of should I, should I forgo the cross you know, and not do what God wants? If I wanted to, I could have called legions of angels, but he opts not to. But they're available. They're available at the time. Okay, with his, with his second coming. Oops, I backed, did I pass? No, uh, the stone is rolled away as well. During his return, they're going to accompany him. They're going to bind Satan, okay? Um, some suggest that when it talks about the gathering of the nations that the angels are involved, I, and there could be a reference to it. I couldn't find one uh, to support that fact. But the idea that they're very involved with the end times, they're very active in pouring out the judgments, and then when he comes back, it talks about him coming with his angels and taking vengeance at that second coming. So we know we're coming with him, but also angels will be assisting him and coming with him. Now, when it comes to you and me and our relationship, it talks about in Hebrews that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to us, them who have the salvation. And so one of the questions that we want to just pose is, how do angels minister to believers? Well, the way we're going to find out is going back and say, okay, illustrations in the Bible, how did they minister to believers in the past? And is that something that God would use them for in the future? And so we talk about how they ministered at times they revealed God's word and will to people. We have several instances where God had the angels come and let people know. In fact, if we go all the way back um, in, in Moses' day, Acts 7 talks about this, that who helped deliver the law to Moses? It talks about there was an angel that helped, that gave him assistance. We have the idea that Mary and Joseph already mentioned to flee. We have an angel telling Philip, Okay, that he needs to go and move on and preach the word of God. The angel comes to an unsaved man, Cornelius, and tells Cornelius you need to call for Peter so that Cornelius can hear the word of God. The law is, is given to Moses through the assistance of angels or angel. Um, Daniel is praying. He's saying, I don't understand. In Daniel 9, I don't understand Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years. And an angel comes and says, I've been sent to reveal this to you. And uh, then again in Daniel 10, he's praying again and he says, an angel comes to him and says, I tried for 21 days to come to you, but I was being held up by the demonic forces, and I couldn't get to you with the answer that God has sent. And so the angels are involved with trying to reveal God's word, God's will to individuals. We know as well in the Old Testament era and New Testament, they met physical needs. They helped people like Elijah, where it talks about he is uh, being cared for in, the, in his journeys and in his wilderness, not in the wilderness. Yeah, he's in the wilderness at this time. First Kings 19 is after he has had the contest. Remember the, the contest with Baal? And there's the 750 prophets versus him. And they, they create the altars. And what does is, what is Elijah do with his altar? Okay, he, he just absolutely uh, inundates it with water, saturates it. And water is a commodity at that moment because there's been a drought for three and a half years. And he's saturating it, and then he stands back and he prays and he says, Oh God, you know, if you're the God, send fire. And fire comes down and, and laps up the sacrifice plus the stones plus the water that's been saturating the ground, it's all gone. And so the response of the people is, yeah, he's the God, let's get rid of the prophets, and they kill all these 750 prophets. Who gets really, really ticked? Do you remember? Jezebel. And what does she threaten to do with Elijah? 
she says, you will be as my prophets by, mor by morning. And, and we make these statement multiple times. If she really wanted to kill him, she would send not a note to say, I'm going to kill you. If you really want to kill somebody, what do you do? You send the assassin. You don't send the note to warn him. And so what happens? Do you remember what Elijah does? He runs away. He gives up the revival. He, he, he just, you know, by the way, this is, this is how you ruin a revival. You don't create a martyr. You get somebody to quit it. And so he quits it, runs away, goes off into the wilderness, and he's journeying for three days, totally exhausted, and he's got an issue. He's got all kinds of issues. What does God do to him? God sends an angel, and it says he, the angel feeds him and rests him for three days. Gets him back on track physically so then he can deal with him spiritually. And so you have an angel ministering. You have the angels getting involved with even the provision of manna. You have them strengthening. Um, in Acts chapter 27, Paul is, is just flabbergasted by the shipwreck. Acts 18, um, I didn't put up here. That's when he says he is so discouraged by his ministry in Corinth, but an angel appeared and encouraged him. So angels are involved with strengthening God's people at time. And they, they did in that era quite frequently. They would help get people out of trouble. Um, they would help deliver them. Daniel in the lion's den, it's an angel that's keeping the lions from attacking. Uh, the apostles are in jail. There's an angel that's involved releasing Peter. There's the 144,000 being protected by God's angels. And so we have multiple cases in the past and in the New Testament era where angels are actively involved with providing some protection, not necessarily visibly seen at all times, but it's there. They minister in this way. They help bring answers to prayer. We have Daniel praying and saying in Daniel 9 and 10, help me to understand, and an angel is involved. The angel is the, in answer to prayer is the one who actually uh, creates the release from Peter from prison. And so we have the instances where they accompany people when they die. This is the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is accompanied into paradise by angels doing that. Um, yeah, and again, we have all heard the stories. We all, you know, about people on their deathbed seeing angels or, you know, being overjoyed. And then we have those stories of some people reacting where they've seen something horrific and something terrible. Um, and so they scream. And then we have others that there's no reaction. And so we understand from a biblical point of view that angels can be involved in, and probably in the case of Lazarus, they were involved accompanying somebody. How much of that awareness is, is are we fully seeing uh, during during this life or when it happens when, we, when our bodies cease, all of that is still subject. Um, and so we, we know that they minister in this way. The question that we have to ask with this in mind, are there guardian angels? Does the Bible imply this? Now, there's churches that would teach this, that would get this whole idea there's guardian angels. Does the Bible ever infer that there are such a thing? I think it does. I think it infers it. Based on this text, where he says, See that you despise not one of the little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Okay, and just that reference of their angels as if there's an assignment. That's not the only text. In, when, in Acts 12, when Peter is released from prison, when the, when the gal goes to answer the door, she comes back, she says, it's his angel. She doesn't use the word that it's his spirit. She uses the word that it's his angel. 
Okay, um, what that mean? What is she meaning by that? We're not sure, but the under the implication seems to be that peoples of that day, without being corrected, had an understanding that there was guardian angels. It seems to me that that seems very reasonable. Here, there's a story of when we talk about how the Lord pro protects and provides and what's involved with this. This is a true story. This is about a Wednesday night Beatrice uh, in Beatrice, Nebraska. As was the custom on Wednesday evening, the Westside Baptist Church was holding its choir practice. Usually the good choir members would arrive long before the 7.30 starting time, but on the evening of March 1, 1950, one by one, two by two, None of them showed up. They all had excuses. Marilyn, the church pianist, overslept from her after-dinner nap, so she and her mother were late. One girl, a high school sophomore, had trouble with her homework. That delayed her, so she was late. One couple couldn't get their car started. They were supposed to pick up another couple, so all four of them were late. All 18 choir members, including the pastor and his wife, were late that night. All had different excuses that were all viable. And at 7.30, the time the choir practice was scheduled to begin, not one soul was in the choir loft. And this had never happened in the church's history. But that night, the only night in the history of the church that the choir was not starting to practice at 7.30 was the night that there was a gas leak in the basement. At the precisely the time at which the choir would have been singing, the church furnace ignited the gas leak and the whole church blew up. The furnace room was right below the choir loft. The Lord does work in mysterious ways. In mysterious ways, that night in Beatrice, it was through homework assignments, etc., etc., etc. Could that be also the involvement of angels unseen? trying to work out, you know, pulling, pulling the wire from the starter, you know, um, so the car didn't start. I, I think we underestimate the spiritual realm. I think we do that too often. I think we, we give, you know, so many times we give credit to circumstances or we, we um, do not take into account the spiritual realm is a real realm, and it's actively interacting with the physical realm. And God, in His care of us, can use His angels who are ministering spirits in multiple ways to be working, to be uh, helping in circumstances, not helping in circumstances, you know, by the will of God. And I think there's active involvement in our lives that sometimes we underestimate in the spiritual realm. Now, with that in mind, okay, we want to we pause and say, okay, do we benefit from angels' ministries? The answer is yes. Do they benefit from you and me? The answer is yes. There's a passage that Peter writes about that talks about how we benefit the angels. This seems odd to us, but it says in Peter's writings, he makes this comment, he says, the salvation of your souls, an extended passage, that of which the prophets have inquired and searched. They didn't understand this whole salvation process. The grace that should come to you, searching what manner of time, the sufferings of Christ, the glory which should follow. And then it makes this statement about, you know, the observation about how great our salvation is. It wasn't fully understood how Christ would do everything. But then it says, which things the angels are investigating. The angels are observing and they are awestruck, if you would, by figuring out, by looking at and saying, God would save me. That, that's an awe-striking thought. Because the angels know what I am and what I do oftentimes more than anybody else besides myself. And to say God's grace is bestowed upon me, that is amazing. And the angels would see that. And they would respond to be able to say, wow, God is so gracious. God is so good. Because they've seen God in His holiness. They've seen God when the angels rebelled, how God dealt with them, chained some of them. And yet God is forgiving to us and gracious to us and extends mercy when we repent. And so they look at that and they learn about even the, the 
beauty and the grace and the love of God Almighty by observing how he interacts with us. And so that would just impress them and, and help them in their worship to even see God as more amazing, as it should to you and me. So we look at angels and we are impressed by God's greatness because those mighty creatures he makes, he controls, they worship him. They look at us and they say, those weak creatures, he loves, he forgives, and they're amazed by that by, and they're impressed by God's goodness. And so it's a mutual uh, Im, uh, impressions that we make upon one another based upon the idea that we end up all worshiping God together. And so when we talk about the angels and we say that they're good for us, what we do learn is this as well. God is really, really, really concerned about us. That he would use his angels, these great beings, to help us, to assist us. That just, again, demonstrates God's kindness to you and me. Now, we also have to pause and think about this. As great as the angels are, as good as they are, and as powerful as they are, and as marvelous as they are, God is not dependent upon them. God is above them. And so he uses them because, not because he can't keep everything in line. God can keep everything, he chooses to use them. Now, let's take it a step further, okay? Not only is he not dependent, but God has done far better for us than angels. What do we have that is far better than the angels ministering to us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Now think this through for a moment, okay? How gracious God has been to you. That God, okay, whereas angels minister to individuals throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the times of, of the gospel era, God has put his Holy Spirit in us. His Holy Spirit is in us abides in us, dwells in us. So there's not just the angelic spirits, but God's Holy Spirit is in us. How amazing. How gracious of Him. Whereas the angels were used to facilitate answers to prayer, we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who helps us to pray, who speaks the utterances that we don't understand and know how to pray at times, according to Romans 8. That the Spirit dwelling within us, this is, this is the grace, the marvel of God, that God would have His Spirit dwell within us. Where we talk about the angels protecting physically, the Holy Spirit protects us eternally. That He gives us that eternal life, and then we are sealed unto the day of redemption. This is the grace, the greatness of God Almighty. How he has blessed us above all generations that we would have the Holy Spirit compared to the saints in the Old Testament, compared to the Gospels, we have the blessing of the Holy Spirit within us. So God has been tremendously kind to you and me in helping out. Okay, and so it brings us back to that thought that we've talked about that even though these angels are powerful, remember they themselves would not rely upon themselves. They would not go against even in my Michael uh, contending for the body of, of Moses, that he dared not to rebuke Satan in his own power, but rather, he says, the Lord rebuke you. He was totally dependent. Michael the archangel, powerful angel, was dependent upon the Lord for strength, for support. In the same way we read about be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not our own, not our experiences, but in the power of the Lord, how we need him time and time again, because greater is he that is in us that is in the world. And so the angels teach us this. Now, the one angel that we need to learn about, because the scriptures tell us we need to learn about him, is Satan. 
You, we know some things about him. Ezekiel 28 gives us a little bit about him. Ezekiel 28, jump down to about verse 13. This gives us a little bit of his background. Ezekiel 28 verse 13. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. Workmanship of your tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub. He goes on to say that covers, and I have set thee so. You were, uh, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were, verse 15, what does he say? You were what? You were perfect in thy ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence and you have sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of what? Yeah, because of your beauty. What do we call that? Pride, pride, yeah. Thy heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings. Now, there's, there's the king of Tyre that's used in this text. And then there's also this symbolism and the analogy of Satan that's in this text. That he's talking about this is a somewhat of a description of Satan and what he was like calling him the cherub, calling him in the Garden of Eden, that he was there, and he was wonderful, and he was beautiful, and he was amazing. He had tremendous wisdom, tremendous beauty, but what was his granddaddy of all sins? It was pride. He was lifted up. Remember how Isaiah says that he was proud? And we read this uh, last week, the week before. Isaiah 14 talks about, he keeps on saying, I will, I will, I will. It was all about him. Okay, And so when we look at Satan, we have to be, be very careful. Satan's sin was pride, was based in pride, and doing his own thing. By the way, where are all of our sins based? Doing our own thing, and in, we're proud. And so here we talk about this character and this creature, and what do we know about him at this point? What do we have, you know, what is there that's revealed in Scripture? There's a whole lot. Now, again, this, this isn't for you to say, okay, I didn't realize this. You already know this. But for you to have the information, if you're talking with somebody, if you're doing a Bible study with somebody at work, you have to define for them that Satan is a real being. Because in our day and age, sometimes Satan is thought of as being a mere force. You know, the force be with you or a mere influence. Satan is more than, a, than an, a force or a feeling or an influence. He's a real person. He's a real being. Okay, we talk about, per the witness of multiple, multiple passages, how he is real. Okay, and we can go through a whole bunch of passages that talk about how this character is not a make-believe fictional character. Look at it in the, in the Gospels. 19 of the 27 New Testament books mention him. And others mention uh, uh, the demons are mentioned in the other few books. Okay, so the bulk of the New Testament point is they mention him. Now watch what it says about Christ in the Gospels. Per the witness of Jesus, there are 29 specific comments about Satan. Jesus makes 25 of them. So Jesus, in his comments about the spirit world, he, he absolutely makes it very clear. Satan is real. He is not make-believe. He is not figment. He is not mythical. 
He is not legendary. He's not a cartoon figure of evil you know, and opposition. He's a real individual. And, and that takes us to this idea. He's an individual. He's a person. He's more than just an idea, just an influence, just a thought. He is frequently referred to in the Bible with personal pronouns. He, uh, him, okay? He's not called in Scripture it. Usually they never use the neuter for Satan. He is used in the personal pronouns, which indicates personality. He is portrayed as possessing that which is unique to persons or beings or individuals, not a force. He has memory. He has morality. He has the ability to speak. He has great intellect. He has will. Okay? He's, he's more than just a thought or an influence or a, a passing idea. He is a person that has goals, that has uh, agenda. What's he like? Well, we know this. He's an angel. He started off as one of the best of the angels. He's called in this text, he's called a cherub. Okay, and that's not the only time. He is called the anointed cherub or the esteemed cherub. And so he was high above all the others. He was an original inhabitant of the Garden of Eden with the creation, with uh, being able to access heaven, in fact. He is considered and called blameless and perfect as you go through that passage we just talked about. So in his origins, he was majestic. He was mighty. He was amazing. He was apparently above all the other angels in the sense that his assignment, his abilities were profound. He's extremely powerful. Very, very powerful. Don't want to minimize this, that he's a powerful creature. He is called and said to be full of wisdom, full of beauty. He is called the leader of the fallen angels. He, that's not just once, but if you notice up here, several times he's called the leader of the fallen angels. He is called the chief of the devils. He is called the prince of the power of darkness. He is called the god of this world. And in other words, this is his domain where he has a lot of rule and a lot of power. And so he's an extremely powerful enemy of God Almighty. Well, if he's an enemy of God Almighty, he's also our enemy, okay? If he hates God by virtue of the fact that you're God's kids, he hates us, okay? And so he's this extremely powerful being is totally corrupt. I think, again, I think we minimize this sometimes. I think we know it up here, but then we, we don't realize how, how evil he is and how he works. He is so corrupt. He is called by Jesus Christ a murderer and a liar, he is called by Paul, the Apostle Paul the wicked one. In fact, he is active. He is so evil that when the word of God is preached, according, remember the story, the parable of the sower and the seeds? Do you remember what, what Satan is pictured as? The birds that come and when the seed is planted, what do they do? They snatch it away. So is Satan or his hordes involved where the preaching of God's word is given? Yes. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to prevent the preaching of the Word of God. They're trying to snatch away the Word of God. They're trying to pull it out of here. Do, do we ever stop and think that maybe, now, and again, I, I don't want to be overreactional, but at the same time, do we ever stop to think that maybe when we're trying to share the Word of God with a coworker and all of a sudden something comes up, real, all of a sudden that draws everybody's attention and pulls away, and you were that close to getting that person to, to think, all of a sudden, the distractions come. Do you ever stop to think that maybe that distraction was spiritually motivated? Do you, do, you, do you think it's possible that 
when the preaching of the word of God is being given in a public scenario, that if all of a sudden some, you know, something happens where you know, we're in a building and it's warm, it's, or it's high, it's like this summer day, and all of a sudden for us, if the AC goes out, does that distract us because we're not used to it? Yeah, do, do we ever stop to think that maybe that gremlin that worked in the AC really was a demonic creature that could interact, that could disrupt? Wow, they can't do Who says they can't do that? Okay, the Bible implies that they can take and get involved with the governments. And what are we supposed to pray for? We're supposed to pray that our government, we would live in a peaceful era time that we could give out the word of God. First Timothy chapter 2. That we pray for the kings and those in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. For what reason? That we may be able to tell people about the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So is it possible that even some of these, some of these conflicts internationally are Satan-induced to hinder the gospel in certain parts of the world? Well, that's what the Bible's implying, that he is alive and active trying to get rid of. By the way, are you going to say, well, I don't feel temptation? You know he's called the tempter. You know that he's called the deceiver. You know that he is called, in fact, when he's called Satan, he's called the idea of a slanderer, okay? The one who attacks you. And so he is this corrupt being, totally corrupt, okay, who presents himself as what? Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, beware because Satan presents himself as an angel of light, okay? And, and we know that's true. We know that, that the way temptation is presented, pick, pick any, let's take alcohol, becoming, giving into alcohol. Let's pick that one for a second. How is it normally presented in temptation? Is it presented as a destroyer of marriages and of reputation? No. How is it portrayed to us? This is something we want to do because it'll make us you know, I'll, be, I'll really be able to be brave and have, you know, speak my mind if I take a few drinks. Okay? It, it's, it's encouraging. You know, the, you know you're, a real, you're a real man if you, can, you know, if you can do that. And it's presented in a very positive light. Okay? But is there tremendous danger in giving in and letting alcohol control? Oh, absolutely. It destroys people. It destroys homes. What about Drugs. Do you think it's ever portrayed to somebody who is, you know, being presented with drugs that this is something that could take your life if you take a little bit too much? That's not the way it's presented. It's presented as something that you want to do this to have a, a high, have a better feeling. Satan is clever. He presents things in a positive way with covering up the negative consequences, I mean, we, we all know, we've all fallen prey at some time to some of those things about lying or about cheating or even disobeying parents. Man, I can, you know, I'm going to be able to spread my wing. I'll be, a, I'll be a real adult if I just not listen to my parents. And we don't, we don't think through the consequences and it's presented in temptation to us as this is how you really become your, your own person. And so he's a liar. He's corrupt. And his hordes follow him. And we're not supposed to be ignorant of him and of his devices. Just thinking about how evil he is, these are his names. If you look at the names that are given in Scripture, 
how they are, they're used. Lucifer, the son of the morning, the uh, devil or slanderer, Diabolus, the Beelzebub, it's the Lord of the Flies, talking about impurity. Belial, literally a good for nothing. Okay, these are titles that are used. None of those titles are the titles that would make us want to gravitate towards him and say, he's cool. Unless you're really, unless you're really, you know, into evil. Okay, um, I don't know about your kids, grandkids. Um, some of ours, when they were little and our grandkids, they have these buddies that they wanted, the stuffed animals they want to sleep with. And usually they're the cuddly things or the, they're the superheroes or they're whatever. None, I, don't, I don't think I would buy any of these that says, okay, this is a great dragon that's going to bite you. Do you want to sleep with? This is the, uh, the old serpent. Here's the Belial, the Lord of the Flies, cuddly doll. These things we would, we would stay away from just by virtue. God is, God is saying this and telling us about him not because God is, is trying to dominate us so that, so that uh, we have no choices, but he's warning us. He's saying this is what this, this person is like. This is what he's proven himself to be like for generations. From the time that I created him, he was good, but he started to turn against me, and when he turned against me, he became the epitome of all evil. And here's who he is. Let's call him for who he is, and you need to be aware of him. And so he gives us these names. Okay, here's our question that we need to ask. How does he affect us? How does he interact with us? We know he opposed Jesus Christ. Here, you, you tell me. How did Satan oppose Jesus? In what ways? Think through the Bible. How did he oppose Jesus personally? How so? Okay. He wanted Herod to use, manipulate Herod to try to kill Jesus as an infant. He used the apostles, good, I don't even have that up there. He used the apostles, where, like the apostle Peter, to try to distract Jesus from doing the will of God going to Jerusalem. Anything else? Okay, same thing. And Satan filled the heart of Judas when he walked out and Jesus, after Jesus had given him the sob. I don't think I have that one up here, but it's true. Okay, the temptation. Okay. Um, what's that? Somebody else? Which ones I have? He tried, well, I, I went all the way back into Egypt trying to destroy the lineage. Even the babes try to kill Jesus as a babe, try to destroy his purity, uh, try to have him destroyed, Judas the cross. And by the way, that idea of Satan attacking Jesus should not surprise us because it's said all the way in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 verse 15 is the proto-euangelion. The, very, the prototype of the gospel, the very first mention of the gospel, he, uh, he's telling Satan, this, the serpent, he says, you shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Okay, the, the, uh, he's talking about the seed of the woman. This is a prediction of Messiah coming, what's going to happen. And in that very beginning, he's made it clear, Satan will be able to hurt Jesus, will hurt the seed of the woman in some way, but he's going to be destroyed ultimately. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus came to this earth that Satan tried to physically destroy him, physically harm him, and tried to take him out if you would. And so we know that he focused on that. How does he oppose evangelistic efforts? Okay, you know, getting the message out. You must be born again. How does, what does Satan do to stop it? What's that? 
Okay, when the word of God is spoken, Matthew 13, when the word of God is spoken, spoken, he snatches it away. Anything else he does? The God of this world hath blinded the eyes of them that believe not. Anything else he does? Think. False teachers. He propagates false teachers. Okay? By the way, this, this, this attack... We are supposed to be involved in evangelism. Okay? That's our job. That's one of our four basic jobs as a church. Get the gospel out. You and I are to be involved personally, not just as a community, but we're supposed to be doing this. We need to be aware that when we're giving out the word of God, somebody is trying to stop us. In what ways do they stop us or hinder us? Be, be alert to this. Okay? Let's just go through. Matthew 13, we already mentioned, this is where he steals away the gospel, like the bird who swoops in and takes away the seed of the word of God. Here's the one 2 Corinthians already mentioned. He blinds, I think, yeah, he blinds unbelievers. The God of this world hath blinded them, so that they can't understand how, how that works, keeping them deceived by things, by other stuff, um, so that they can't comprehend. He's very active dealing with people and trying to keep them from the truth in this regards. In 2 Corinthians 11, he has the false ministers. This is the passage that he has the ministers of light that are involved with transforming themselves into ministers of light. There's a lot of churches going on this morning. There's a lot of different places you could go. And you could do church that would not preach truth. They would not preach the word of God. They would not preach he must be born again. But people will be very content because they have gone to church. Okay? And the part of that is giving a false gospel. Giving a deceptive message that tells people everyone is good. Nobody will go to hell. And you don't have to worry as long as you're a good person. That's a, great, that's a great message to be a good person, but it's a false gospel that you can earn your way into heaven. Um, Galatians 1, he even says this, if anybody comes to you and preaches a different gospel than I've preached unto you, let him be, okay, anathema. Let him be cursed. So very clearly that there are, there are false gospels that go out. Let's talk about a little bit more. He promotes false Christs. False messiahs. messiahs. Who is one of the major messiahs of world religions? That's a false messiah that people look up to. Okay, the Pope could be one. Okay, the, that people would look up to and say that if he blesses me, I'm going to heaven. My aunt believes that. She believed that as long as she had an audience and one of those great audiences and he blessed her, she is definitely going to heaven because she went to Rome and did a pilgrimage and she was blessed and she's going to go to heaven because he blessed her. Uh, another world religion that has their prophet that everybody follows. Okay, false gospel, false, false prophet, okay, that is given in a false Christ. Matthew 13, he mingles, and this is that interesting passage where he's talking about in the parable that there's the field and there's not only the wheat but what else is mixed in. The tares, right. The wheat and tares. And remember the master, the servants say, hey, we have some tares growing up with the wheat. And he, they said, should we go out and rip it out? And what does the master say? Don't do it yet. Wait until harvest, then we'll separate. Why do the enemies, why would they sow tares amidst the wheat? 
Okay, that's that whole idea. That's that whole idea. It's the idea that you're going to, you're going to weaken the wheat by taking some of the soil's nutrition away from the wheat. And so is it possible that Satan is active in mixing unbelievers in churches so as to get churches to be distracted from their real business? Okay, okay let, me, let me throw this out. Is it possible that some of the division that we sometimes experience in Bible-believing churches could be premeditatedly planned by the evil one of implanting individuals who aren't even born again who want to get the church more involved over something silly like a building than getting out the gospel. Is that a possibility? To get people to all of a sudden get distracted and, I mean, have you ever heard of churches stopping their ministries over the color of the sanctuary? Yes, no? Okay, the things that, you know, what, kind, what should the chandeliers look like? Okay, um, you know, what, what should we do with the parsonage? Yeah, um, you know, some want to fix it up, some don't want to fix it up. And that becomes a feud. And, and you know, some of those things, we, I know we have to be careful and we should be wise and I know we want to be careful what colors we choose. I understand all that. But can some of that distract us from the real business? Sure. Sure, so we've got to be very, very careful. He not only opposes the evangelistic effort, this is hand in hand, he opposes God and God's truth. Okay, let me just highlight what we mean by that. In the very beginning, now I'm going to look at this more next week. In the very beginning, who is being attacked? Think these words through. Here's how Satan speaks to Eve. Yea, hath God said. What's implied by that phrase? What's that? God's a liar. God's a liar. Can you really trust God? Yeah. And he says, but the day that you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods. What's implied by that? Isn't there the implication God is doing what? He's holding out on you. Okay, so Satan is attacking the character of God from the very beginning. Oh, by the way, when we are attacked about doubting or distrusting God, isn't it the same thing? Is God reliable? Can we trust him? So the enemy has used this tool for generations and it's become pretty effective. You know, he's gotten down to a science and it's worked in a lot of people's lives. In 1 Timothy, in this text, do you remember 1 Timothy 4? We showed this to you two weeks ago. This is the text that talks about the latter days he, we have the doctrines of the devils that says we should eat certain foods or commands us to abstain from certain foods and to abstain from, from you know, other, other things like marriage. Celibacy. That idea that, oh boy, if you're celibate, you're really spiritual. And so that false teaching of asceticism, that false teaching that certain foods make you more spiritual, you're more one with nature, and things of that sort, that's a false teaching opposing God. In Exodus, he had the false miracles, where the, we talked about this before, the, the Jannies and Jambres, the, the prophets, the, the magicians for Pharaoh, they duplicated the snake, the serpent turning, the rods turning the serpents in front of Moses. And Moses' rod turned the serpent and ate him up. But the point is he can do miracles. 
in opposing God. We note this as well. Galatians, we already mentioned, this is the one about false gospels. In 1 John chapter 2, he talks about in, the, in this time, there are many antichrists going about and teaching false ideas about Jesus Christ. He's opposing God in this fact. In Revelation chapter 12, he empowers antichrist. An antichrist is empowered to the point that he can go and sit on the throne and be worshipped as God. And then it talks about he is going to attack the nation of Israel. He's cast out of heaven. He goes after the woman who is pictured there, standing with the 12 different stars and on the moon, all the picture of Israel, and how Satan as the dragon is trying to destroy her, but God protects her and takes her into the wilderness. This is all picture speech about how he's going to try to annihilate Israel. And by the way, has that been a goal of Satan for generations. What other nation historically, think this through, what other nation historically has been so persecuted out of their land and still maintain their identity? No. Nobody in history. That's what makes Israel such a unique nation, a chosen nation. They have survived like no other nation and still the persecution comes. Still the attacks come. And in the end the attacks will come. Why is Satan determined to destroy Israel? If he can destroy Israel, he's defeated God's promises. God was unable to keep his covenant promises that there would be a remnant of Israel for the future kingdom and into eternity. So he keeps on attacking. Now in Revelation 20, 20 is this text that what happens that he leads the, the armies against Jesus Christ descending out of heaven that they will turn against Jesus and try to destroy Jesus physically. I mean, you and I look at it from this point of view. Are you crazy? You see God's Son coming out of heaven as bright as the sun, riding on horses with this huge heavenly army, and we're going to shoot him down. We look at that and go, how dumb can you get? Okay? And yet, they're going to be very, very convinced they can destroy him. Remember, they've seen miracles. They've seen amazing things. They are totally blinded. And then, what gets worse is this. There's a thousand years Satan has put away. That thousand years is peace and prosperity. Those people born during that time period, everything is great. There's no money problems. There's no education problems. There's no social security problems. There's no doctor's problems. There's no tax problems. There's no car payment problems. There's no insurance difficulties. What a world. What a world. That, that in and of itself makes it heavenly. There's going to be the long life. Everything is taken care of. Jesus is on the throne. And yet we read at the end of the text that when the thousand years is up, Satan is released. And Satan comes and he again attacks the character of Jesus Christ. And it says as the sands of the seas he will get people to follow him. Why would they follow Satan after they've had such a perfect thousand years? What's that? He's the great deceiver. He's the great deceiver. What's that? Yeah, the unsaved man living in that time period just shows that there's a sin nature there. I suppose he's going to do the same thing he did in Genesis 3. God's holding out on you. I could do so much better for you. You, you didn't have any choice. You had to obey Jesus and you never got to be your own person. If you could just be your own person, everything would be great. And peoples by the hordes will follow Satan in a perfect environment. Oh, by the way, surprise. What kind of environment was it when he first got man to sin? It was a perfect environment. At the very last environment, it's a perfect environment. How much did God provide for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Everything. How much will he provide during the thousand-year reign? Everything. 
How much health issues do they have in the Garden of Eden? How many issues and problems do they have during the thousand years? None. None. And in both cases, he gets the peoples to follow after him. He's clever. He's really clever. You know, that people will not look at the facts. Now, this is me. This is my political point of view, okay, just to illustrate. I thought people in one of the, the elections a few years back were really swayed with not looking at facts. The economy tanked. It was terrible. And it was, you know, the, you know, there was a lot of problems. But what I learned is Americans do not necessarily look at all the facts. Personality speaks volumes. And if you can be a persuasive personality, you can win despite the facts. And I didn't think people would think that way. You know, and it's like we are living in a time and age that sometimes people don't look at the realities of facts. They are looking at the charisma of the individual. Satan has charisma. And he is a potent enemy. Though he looks good, he is totally corrupt. We live in dangerous times. We live in terrible times. You and I as believers, we live in a time where this person, he's attacking us personally. We need Jesus Christ. He is the only hope we have to overcome this evil one who is after our destruction.